The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. In this terrible hour of crisis, America must look to its president with an unshakable confidence. My attitude is one of complete optimism. With the help of such patriotic and idealistic men as yourselves, I plan to carry this nation from the depths of despondency to the unsullied and sunny heights of prosperity. I count on you, journalists, for inspiration and support. In the future, all questions will have to be submitted in writing 24 hours before these meetings. Today, however, the president has very generously consented to answer a few questions directly. Well, Mr. Mr. President, Mr. Patterson, does the president intend to grant John Bronson an interview? The president hasn't forgotten that Bronson heads a million men who are armed and unemployed. In the last count, there were 270 camps of these men in the public parks of our larger cities. The president considers the whole question of unemployment a local problem. Is the administration going to take any action on the racketeering that's rampant in the country? Are notorious gangsters like Nick Diamond going to get away with it? My party also regards Nick Diamond and all racketeers as local problems. We choose to believe that bootlegging and all forms of racketeering will disappear as soon as the public become educated to respect the 18th Amendment. Mr. Thiessen. Mr. President, my paper's indictment against the government is a staggering one. Starvation and want is everywhere, from coast to coast and from Canada to Mexico. Millions of dollars are poured into new battleships. Farmers burn corn and wheat. Food is thrown away into the sea while men and women are begging for bread. Men are freezing without coats while cotton rots in the fields. Thousands of homeless, millions of vacant homes, over 5,000 gangland murders last year, yet only five gangsters in prison. Not for killing, but for income tax violations. What does the new administration say to this? What answer? What definite plan has the government to this indictment? This tale of misery and horror, of lost hope, a broken faith of the collapse of the American democracy. Gentlemen, remember, our party promises a return to prosperity. May the president be quoted? The president may not be quoted. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, August 13th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on 94.9 CHRW Radio Western, where we'll be with you from now till noon. And of course, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be you know, every one of those issues that was raised in our opener today from the 1933 Depression-era movie, Gabriel Over the White House, are essentially the same issues that are discussed practically in every election debate. Only the names and places and immediate circumstances really change, while the eternal issues never seem to change. They're essentially the same issues that were discussed last week, both here in Canada and south of the border. As you may know... A week ago today, only hours after our last Just Right broadcast, two events, or I guess you could say three if you want to include the last broadcast of John Stewart on The Daily Show, but two major political events, the McLean's federal leaders debate here in Canada and the Republican primaries in Cleveland, featuring the entertaining wit and wisdom of none other than Donald Trump, captured the attention of most of the North American viewing public last week. Now, I didn't watch any of these events at the time that they were actually going on. 
But I did force myself this past Monday to sit through no less than about, oh, five hours of political debate, both here and south of the border, as I watched both the Republican primary in Cleveland and the first McLean's Magazine um, federal leaders debate featuring the four party leaders, Stephen Harper, Justin Trudeau, Thomas Mulcair, and Elizabeth May. I expected complete boredom. Like like I told you last week, I said I was already tired of the election, especially after having heard most of the other media discussing their reaction to the debates in what I found were kind of very superficial terms. And they they made it all sound like, yeah, nothing happened, nothing new, nothing there to, to glean from in terms of informing ourselves. But I don't think that's exactly true. There was a lot more than the few predictable, you know, and unavoidable boring moments, which always go along with these events. And I plan to share those parts of my experience with you today. Given all the hype and the great expectations going into the debates, post-media coverage and analysis was very superficial and dismissive, I have to say. I think everybody sounded like they were almost disappointed that there were no disasters. And while everyone seemed to agree that there were no winners in the first McLean's Canadian leaders debate, I beg to differ, and we'll elaborate on that later on. Meanwhile, south of the border, the Republican debates got underway and attracted unprecedented ratings for Fox News. I think it was a new record for them, who aired the debate live primarily thanks to what people call the antics of Donald Trump, who found himself a key focus of attack during the debate. And, of course, he was ridiculed by various members of the media, including our local media, for his comments that I think were somewhat taken out of context to make him seem the fool, which is one thing I don't think he is. He was not a fool about this. In the second half of our show today, our focus will be on Donald Trump's performance last week, featuring original, unedited comments of Mr. Trump. It was more entertaining than stand-up comedy or most scripted dramas. I I kid you not. Stick around and you'll know exactly what I mean. Uh, During the opening half of our show, we'll be taking our first look at the current Canadian election, which... Uh, Most pundits wrote off as a boring exercise with no winners, no losers, no knockout punches. But, you know, that's not what I heard. So for today, we'll only be focusing on the specific, uh, as far as the Canadian uh, federal election goes, we'll only be uh, focusing on the specific issue of electoral reform, which, as I predicted last week, was surfacing as a key issue promoted in some way by all the federal Canadian parties. There were a lot of other really great exchanges, I have to say, on on the economy, on um, Islamic terrorism, on the environment, but uh, there's simply no time to squeeze them into into this hour, and we'll save them for future focuses on those issues when we get our next chance to talk about them, because there was a lot there that we should know about, especially when we think about, if we want to know what our leaders are thinking and how they think. Of course, no party has yet released its, uh, its official platform, so that's that's coming in the future. This is almost, I understand too, this might have been the only debate we'll, we will see, possibly at all, and certainly with Elizabeth May sitting in on the debate. So what I've done for us today is edited to their very bare essentials, focused um, 
audio selections of both the Canadian leaders' debate and the Republican debate in Cleveland without all of the boring introductions, all the long pauses, or other distractions that may have you know, originally slowed the pace of the original debate. Again, the two focuses are electoral reform in the first half of the show and Donald Trump under attack in the U.S. primaries in the second half. Now, I imagine that most of you have not heard many of the essentials of those debates, so I'll be saving you a lot of time by having created these focused edits of them. Expect to be both informed and entertained. But before we begin all that, don't forget... You can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. So, who won the first 2015 Canadian election debate? Stephen Harper. It was Harper's debate to lose, and he didn't. I realize how that completely conflicts with the general consensus. I'm not talking about who's winning the election, just who won the debate, okay? But the general consensus, of course, was based more on polls and public impressions than substance, and I'll elaborate a bit more on that a little later on. But to those who keep clamoring for some nebulous concept that they call, you know, quote-unquote change, I have to say that none of the other party leaders expressed any major concerns that would cause me to prompt a change in government. And most of them, you know, most of their ideas, though not all, were literally verging on the, on the wacky side. <laughs> so you can keep the change, thanks. My big question is, are things bad enough to demand uh, a real change in government? Are the proposed alternatives to what we have now so much better than what we have now, or are they worse? Well, from what I heard in the debate, change will be change for the worse. Uh, I don't see anything positive coming out of it. And as that change is all seemed, you know, it all seems to be geared to making it impossible to govern rationally, and that's what concerns me greatly. And this concerns the issue we talked about last week. What I have to say won't make much sense unless you first hear what the leaders themselves had to say. Again, our narrow focus here is on electoral reform, voting, and democracy, the same issues we began a discussion on last week. So, for the following, oh, eight and a half minutes or so, the next voices you hear will be those of debate moderator Paul Wells and party leaders Stephen Harper, Thomas Mulcair, Justin Trudeau, and Elizabeth May, all on generally the focus of electoral reform. So here we go. Our first question on this to Elizabeth May. Ms. May, you've called the government we have now an elected dictatorship, and you've called for electoral reform. But this election will be won and lost under the current electoral system. Do you worry that Green candidates will take support away from other parties that could defeat this government? Might the Green Party help re-elect this government? When I refer to the government as an elected dictatorship, it's not personal in any way to the Prime Minister nor to his party. It's a reference to what's happened, a creeping growth, an unhealthy growth of power in the Prime Minister's office, which goes along with less of a role for individual members of Parliament in doing their fundamental job. The only job description for a member of Parliament is that found in the Constitution, 
which is to represent your constituencies. So we need to actually revisit parliamentary democracy, understand that this election isn't about electing a prime minister. We don't do that in this country. We elect members of parliament, and their job is to find the government that will hold the confidence of the House so we can work for Canadians. So instead of fixating on this splitting the vote non-problem, vote splitting, we need to focus on the real problem, which is that 40% of Canadians in the last number of elections haven't voted. And vote abandoning, in my view, is a much bigger problem than vote splitting. And we're going to do everything we can to reach out to young people, First Nations, and those disadvantaged by the Conservative Fair Elections Act to get out a higher level of vote so that Greens can win in the current system, but that so Canada wins with a healthier democracy. Justin Trudeau, you get to respond. Yes. Uh, Elizabeth May makes a number of great points, but uh, one of the ones is something I hear about all across the country when I'm talking to young people, when I'm talking to people who are simply disillusioned and disenchanted with our political system, whether it's the negativity, the attack, the divisiveness that tends to uh, be rewarded all too often uh, with electoral success that ends up making it more and more difficult to govern. Uh, but one of the things that really uh, frustrates a lot of people is when they see politicians uh, pander, when they say one thing in one part of the country and a different thing in another part of the country. And uh, one of the things that unfortunately Mr. Mulcair has been uh, uh, doing quite regularly is talking in French about his desire to repeal the Clarity Act, uh, to make it easier uh, for those who want to break up this country uh, to actually do so. And in doing so, he's actually disagreeing with the Supreme Court judgment uh, that said that one vote is not enough to break up the country. And anyone who wants to become Prime Minister uh, not only should not say different <coughs> things in French and in English, but should make sure that they side with the Supreme Supreme Court when it comes to unity of our country. Mr. Mulcair, you get to answer that. Now, I can understand it's a bit frustrating for the Liberals that for the first time in a full generation, Quebecers voted massively for a Federalist Party and they wanted nothing to do with the Liberals. And it's easy to understand why you just heard it. The only two people I know in Canada who are anxious to start talking about separatism again are Justin Trudeau and Gilles Duceppe. Mr. Trudeau has an obligation if he wants to talk about this subject, to come clean with Canadians. What's his number? What is your number, Mr. Trudeau? First of all, Mr. Mulcair, I don't, You're not question, I don't question your patriotism. You haven't answered. Uh, the question is, uh, why is number, your policy Justin? so reckless? You want a number, Mr. Yeah, Mulcair? I'll give number. you a number. Nine. My number is nine. Nine Supreme Court justices said one vote is not enough to break up this country, and yet that is Mr. Mulcair's position. He wants to be Prime Minister of this country, and he's choosing to side with the, the separatist movement in Quebec and not with uh, the Supreme Court of Canada. And so, he's bringing this up. It's his policy to repeal the Clarity Act. He quietly put forward a bill in the House of Commons on that. He announced yes, it's really it very loudly when you put it in, in the House French. Of Commons. He very loudly <laughs> announced it in French six weeks ago uh, in, uh, at the Saint-Jean-Baptiste okay, parade, so one, and he won't talk about it in English. One more chance, Mr. Trudeau, to name a, a margin above 50% that you think would be acceptable. The Supreme Court said very clearly that Mr. Mulcair's he number is not the right one. What it also said he is the number, number is to be set in the context of the next referendum. It is in the oh, next referendum. While, while I'm at Paul, it, can if I... I can, if I can, Paul. Look, I'm not going to question Mr. Mulcair's position as a longtime federalist. That is clear. 
What I think I do question, along with Mr. Trudeau, is why bring up a debate of the Clarity Act other than to satisfy the separatist elements within the NDP in Quebec? Nobody's talking about that. You know, we just had Quebecers massively reject that agenda. Nobody wants to raise this. Why would we go down the route of talking about how we, how we can best break up the country when, in fact, Quebecers clearly do not want to do that? Well, I don't understand thing it. Let me try my luck. Since there's a debate among two of our leaders about the margin that would uh, decide this question in sovereignty, let me put the question to the Prime Minister. As a reform MP, you, you used to support a 50% margin in a referendum on sovereignty. I don't believe I've heard you give a number or revisit that question as Prime Minister. Well, you haven't heard me revisit it, Paul, because I don't think it should be revisited. But, you know, I think Quebecers have firmly rejected that. They've gone through 40 years of, the, of a debate that has done nothing but damage to that province. Indeed. I think that, Quebecers and, and have the irony, the irony of so, well. so why Mulcair, raise the issue? Paul, why start that, promising Mulcair, that to separatists that, in Quebec? Prime Minister and I agree that yes means yes. That's what he put in his bill. And to say otherwise, as Mr. Trudeau is doing, no. while still refusing to give his number, Mr. is a dangerous political Mr. game, Mulcair. and I'll tell you why. If yes doesn't mean yes, then people could decide to vote yes as a way of sending a signal. That's why it's a dangerous political game, and that's why it's not a serious way to talk about a very serious subject. But I'm so proud, and I have confidence in Quebecers who have twice rejected separation, and I fought in both of those referendums. Then why, now, Mr. Now, Mr. Mulcair, Mr. Mulcair you're trying to throw gasoline on a fire that isn't even burning. Mr. Trudeau has lost confidence, and he thinks that it's a winning situation for the Liberals to scratch that old wound. Let That's Mr. what they Let want Mr. to get Mulcair, back to. You are the one who announced that position number, on separation, on making it What's easier. Your number? My position is the Supreme Court's what? position that number? says the number should be set in the context of the next referendum if that ever comes. And your play to try and stoke up that separatist vote for the NDP by announcing at Saint-Jean-Baptiste six weeks ago that this is continuing to be your policy is not worthy of a Prime Minister. This no Prime Minister should make it easier. I was just going to say, isn't it ironic that this segment was supposed to be our democratic institutions, starting with clips about how much heckling there is in the House of Commons, how difficult it is to have a civil conversation. We can, as Canadians, it's been our hallmark for generations that we can disagree without being disagreeable. And I would like us to be able to talk about what we do about fixing Parliament, because that's an urgent crisis. And I don't Let's believe that we want to get ourselves mired into any threat of separatism. Uh, Peter Kim with Global News. Um, I'm going to bet that there were way more young people tuning into The Daily Show's final episode than watching this debate. Uh, and that's a statement on you guys and what they think about politics in this country. Um, what do you have to say to young people in this country uh, about um, why they should be engaged and why your party uh, is the best to lead? Well, one of the things that the popularity of The Daily Show and, uh, quite frankly, the level of engagement that young people show across the country, uh, whether it's in local causes or big single issue uh, uh, you know, positioning or activism on various levels, is we have a generation of young people who are very interested, very concerned about the way the world is unfolding. The one thing they're not particularly convinced of is that 
formal active politics actually has any role for them in being part of changing the world. And that's one of the things that I've focused very much on is drawing in a new generation of young people to understand that politics doesn't have to be as uh, cynicism-inducing as Mr. Harper has made it. Uh, there's room for openness, for thoughtfulness, uh, for bringing in multiple points of view and for working together to actually solve the big challenges, whether it's poverty, whether it's in climate change, uh, whether it's social justice and human rights. Oh, yikes. <laughs> you know, ironically, though they are all talking about engaging youth, it, it's a completely juvenile conversation. Listening to this part of the debate for me was like listening to a bunch of kids getting together for the first time to play the Parker Brothers game of democracy, and the object of the game is getting as many players on the board as you possibly can, not by getting around the board and accomplishing or winning anything. Uh, you know, to end of the story, end of story, end of history, and of all the evolution of a parliamentary democracy that we in Canada should be grateful for having inherited from the wisest and tried and true and tested experience of the British Commonwealth and the empire that preceded it. You know, am I really expected to believe that Elizabeth May and, you know, Justin Trudeau and all these people who want, want to end, for example, first past the post, get out more voters, that they really, that Elizabeth May, for example, wants more conservative voters or that Justin Trudeau wants more NDP and Green voters? Of course, what they want is their own voters to come out. They're not really interested in increasing the number of voters unless it's theirs. Now, my experience has been quite different about engaging youth and if you want to engage youth, why not try telling them the truth about their democratic inheritance and of how democracy was not born of a philosophy of robbing Peter to pay Paul or by insisting that truth and the right thing to do are determined by the guy with the most numbers. You've got to get these ideas out of their heads. This principle is both demonstrably and logically false. Now, last week, as you know, I rejected the notion of uh, abolishing the monarchy or of abolishing the Senate or of abolishing the first-past-the-post system of voting because really what everybody's trying to solve is a problem with the people who are governing. And so they figure, well, if we change the system, we can change uh, the people in it. It doesn't work that way. Now, I've, I've got a lot of comments and notes written here about what we just heard. don't know how many of them I'll get to before the, the bottom of the hour. But... Elizabeth May speaks of a, an elected dictatorship and speaks of a creeping unhealthy growth of power in the prime minister's office and, and says that the only job description in the Constitution for the, the lesser members of the parliament is representing their constituencies. And she says we need to revisit parliamentary democracy, to which I first have to ask why. Um, yeah, of course we don't elect the Prime Minister, we elect members of Parliament. What, you want to change it? You want to make us elect the Prime Minister? That's not the way democracy even works. It's a representative system, and they, of course they want to go into a system of direct democracy. And she says, instead of fix, fixating on vote splitting, we need to focus on the real problem that 40% of Canadians in the last number of elections who have not voted. Well, this is simply not a problem. And here's a classic example of how May wants to water down the power of your individual vote by insisting that people who do not vote, for whatever reason, should be treated with the same status as those who choose to vote. She calls it vote abandoning, and she says that's a big, bigger problem. Well, why do you think they're abandoning going to vote? Because they're listening to people like you saying things like this every day. 
and she wants to reach out to young people, First Nations and disadvantaged, and and uh, and uh, she's she's blaming Harper's Fair Elections Act on on failing to get out a higher level of vote, and that that's what creates a healthier democracy. More people voting does not create a healthier democracy. It doesn't do anything. In fact, it might make a sicker one. Now, Justin Trudeau, of course, agrees with May's silly argument, but has more of his own silliness to add. And he says, young people are simply disillusioned and disenchanted with our political system. Now, that's very true to a point. But they're young, and they haven't really had a had a chance to get disenchanted yet. They haven't been enchanted, for, for heaven's sakes. The divisiveness that all too often tends to be rewarded with electoral success, he complains about, making it more difficult to govern. And I'm thinking, well, hello, this is so weird and dumb and contradictory, it's difficult to speak to. The truth is exactly the opposite. It's more difficult to govern when there's no clear winner of electoral success. That's why we like majority governments, where there's no question of sharing power with the opposition parties. And then, of course, he referred, uh, this is uh, Trudeau, referring to uh, Mulcair as a pandering politician. And I have to say, that's one of his strongest points he brought up during the debate, during the debate. And, you know, and Mulcair points out how the only two people anxious to talk about separatism are Trudeau and Duceppe. And, um, you know, talk regarding the Clarity Act. I think he was being, Mulcair was being totally disingenuous in saying that, especially since it was clear from that entire exchange that it was Mulcair who precipitated the separatism issue in the first place. And, uh, you know, Trudeau comes up with his number nine. That was obviously clearly prepared, and he was ready for that. But interestingly, and here again, this speaks to Harper's power, he comes in and agrees with Mr. Trudeau Trudeau on this issue. Uh, Why bring up the Clarity Act? And, you know, here's another reason. Why should I vote for Trudeau if he and Harper agree on this particular issue, at least on this issue? And and other than to satisfy the separatist element within the NDP in Quebec. And I thought, wow, that's worth knowing and perfectly consistent with a socialist NDP philosophy. And he says, nobody's talking about this issue. Who's going down this road? I agree, you know. And, of course, Trudeau agreed as well. And... Then Mulcair did a weird switch. Did you notice that? He says, uh, oh, I agree with the prime minister that yes means yes. Uh, That's what he put in his bill. And so suddenly he switched the discussion from a number to a yes-no option, uh, which was, to me, a bit of a non-sequitur, and uh, tried to to switch attention, right? And and, uh, Harper says uh, Mulcair's trying to throw gasoline on a fire that isn't even burning, (laughs) in which case Mulcair's argument would just be a bunch of gas, right? Just hot air. Mulcair says uh, uh, Trudeau thinks it's a winning point for the Liberals to scratch that old old wound. Again, totally disingenuous. Trudeau was merely pointing out that the NDP itself was doing this, and Harper fully agreed with him. Uh, Mulcair continued to evade Trudeau's very clear and understandable argument by continually interjecting, what's your number, Justin? Even after Trudeau explicitly said nine and cited his reasons and process, for an already agreed-to method of determining that number in the future should such a necessity arise. And then, of course, um, May says, this is, this is interesting, too. She says, isn't it ironic that it's supposed to be part of our democratic institutions and talking about heckling, it's difficult to have a civilized or a civil conversation. Um, I'm kind of heckling right now. I don't know what May was talking about. We were listening to a civil conversation. And when she says, we can, as Canadians, disagree without being disagreeable, I would like to talk about fixing Parliament, because that's the urgent crisis. Uh, 
talk about being disagreeable. You know, we don't want to get mired into separatism, she says. Well, I'm thinking, well, talk about being disagreeable with separatists. But disagree without being disagreeable? This is pure crap. May just wants everyone to agree with her. If by disagreeable she means being rude or unduly hostile and impolite, I didn't hear any of that. Interruptions encountering facts in a debate is what a good debate's all about. It's not being disagreeable unless you don't let the other side speak at all, I guess. And then, of course, uh, Trudeau was interviewed by Peter Kim of Global News talking about more young people watching The Daily Show's final episode and Trudeau saying that they're not convinced that any formal act of politics has any role for them and closes off with saying uh, we have to solve the big challenges, poverty, climate change, social justice, and human rights. Well, <laughs> they're, those are the, the worst four words I ever wanted to hear out of a politician. Poverty is a social condition that most manifests itself in collectivist political environments. You can see that around the world anywhere. The more socialism you have, the more poverty you seem to have. Isn't that an interesting, um, you know, contradiction almost. Climate change is a fact of existence, much like gravity and the lunar cycles. And of course what he's meaning here is, it didn't come up, but carbon, carbon taxes and things like that. Social justice is an evil. It means not individual justice. In terms of action, it means robbing Peter to pay Paul for the mere sake of trying to solve inequality, which is not the same thing as poverty, remember. And human rights, of course, are group rights, not individual rights. And when we hear the words and terms poverty, social justice, human rights, and climate change, they're the current and sometimes eternal working language of socialists, communists, and collectivists everywhere. The words are fuzzy and vague, which is always necessary given their various different agendas, and they want to sound kind of like they're on the same page as is the notion of changing a political system that has evolved to protect us from these evils. You know, life, liberty, and property are taken for granted. And by collectivist politicians, literally so, <laughs> they take one small piece at a time, parts of your right to life, your right to liberty, and your right to property. And that's what such parties actually do. The left, of course, is always prone to splintering because there's simply no end to the number of irrational ideas about government that are all calculated to get what the other guys earned without earning it oneself. For them, everything is an entitlement. For them, an entitlement is what a right is, not freedom from co you know, economic coercion or physical coercion or freedom of action. So again, you want to get young people engaged, tell them these truths. Explain to them the urgency and priority of defining their words and terms clearly without all these ambiguities. It's amazing how clear political issues become once the fuzziness of all the meaningless, you know, in terms of policy, meaningless terms are, that are being used. And I've witnessed this firsthand myself. If we keep talking about the stuff that our current po political crop of politicians are talking about, even I would tune out if it weren't for my, well, more than academic interest in this subject. And, you know, I, I understand that youth feels left out of the debate and they think it's all about participating and getting more votes and things like that, but that's not where it's at. And this is what keeps coming out over and over again, so I guess it has to be repeated. You know, yes, Virginia, there is a way to affect the direction of your government, and it's just sitting there waiting to be accessed, and it's called the political party. That's why they exist.
Join one if it agrees with your point of view, or form one if there are no parties that would represent you, if you really want to affect the issues. That's where all the action happens, is within the political party structure. Getting a crowd together just to scream their demands loudly is not a democratic process. Joining financially supporting and or working with a political party is the only way to participate effectively in creating change or affecting the political landscape in a meaningful way. You know, once you're down at the vote point, those decisions and arguments and issues have all been all, you know, pretty much washed out and all that's left is for an acceptance or rejection of them, the voting process. And that's the, the least impacting because all you can vote for is the one, two, three, four, or five choices that you get at the polls, and none of them may, may match the choice that you want. Another interesting thing, too, and I may speak more on this in the future, is that political parties are private associations which bridge the gap between the private sovereign individual, and the government under which he or she is governed. Political parties and party discipline are the means of preventing an abuse of power, which is exactly why people like Elizabeth May want to portray this discipline as an elected dictatorship. You know, all governing bodies, whether a political party or a coalition of parties, govern as elected dictators. Um, they're not necessarily representatives in the sense that we think of them. We discussed this before on the show, too. Now, as we go into our bottom-of-the-hour break, we'll hear once more from the Canadian debate on the subject of electoral form. Could the reason that Justin Trudeau wants to end the first-past-the-post system be, be because he prefers the last-past-the-post <laughs> since that's where he expects his party to finish? You know, if you abolish first-past-the-post, let's remember that what's really being abolished is the post itself. There is no post, just a ranking, no winners, no losers, except we all know that's BS. Elections would really not be necessary because, as Harper so succinctly put it, you'd no longer be able to vote a government into power, but a coalition of contradictory agendas. What's ironic about all this is that ending first-past-the-post is completely unnecessary in a, pol- in a parliamentary democracy because any two parties of similar ideologies who together outnumber the seats in the House of Parliament in terms of the winning party can always work together against the party they dislike. It's already a form of proportional representation when sitting as a minority government. For my money, Harper hit the nail right on the head when he says that unlike proportional representation, the Westminster system allows voters to elect governments, not coalitions that form after the election. We'll hear that now, and when we return on the other side of our break, we'll turn our attention to south of the border. The Liberal Party has a project of electoral reform. They, the, Mr. Trudeau has said he wants the next election to be last under first past the post. He doesn't want to have a referendum on any reform. Stephen Harper wants to insist that any change to the electoral system go through a referendum process. Why do you think that should, that should happen? Well, I think it's a very fundamental change to the way our political system would work in this country. We have a Westminster system. Um, voters are able to elect governments. They don't elect coalitions that make up the government later. And, you know, Canadians, Paul, this has come up before. It was subject of a referendum plebiscite in Ontario and Prince Edward Island, British Columbia. I have not found Canadians who want to make this, cha- this fundamental change. In fact, whenever Canadians are asked, they reject it. Uh, we know we know the rules. Let's play under the rules that Canadians. What's interesting is to case. hear Mr. Harper say that today, because when he brought in his unfair elections act, 
He refused to even talk to Canadians about it. We stood up strong in the House of Commons and opposed it. We shut down travel by parliamentary committees. We used every tool in our parliamentary toolbox to stop him from trying to walk away with the next election by jigging the rules. He's actually made it harder for whole classes of Canadians to vote. And that's not just oh. our opinion. All of the experts who have looked at his Unfair Elections Act have said the same thing. So, Mr. Harper, if you've become such a keen fan of making sure that no single party can change the rules. Why did you go ahead and do just that with your Unfair Elections well, Act? Well, the Fair Elections Act, the principal change it makes that Mr. Mulcair and the other parties oppose is that voters have to show ID to demonstrate who they are. And there's 40-some uh, different pieces of ID that they can, they can show. Canadians overwhelmingly support that. That's an important reform. That 90, change 90 was made in 2007. Of, it wasn't of made. It was already made before that you, you should introduced be able to the show, show identification and identify who you are before you vote. And frankly, I think voters should be worried about political parties who would not do that, who think it's fine to have people vote, example. who can't identify this themselves. This is a perfect example of how Mr. Harper uh, creates straw man arguments, creates fears of massive voter fraud. When his uh, party was pressed on examples of people fraudulently voting, they weren't able to prove anything. Indeed, some of his MPs uh, mistakenly testified to things that they actually hadn't seen. The fact of the matter is the job of Elections Canada and what we should look at as a goal as, an, as, an, as a country is to try and encourage as many people as possible to vote. And the changes Mr. Harper has made to the Elections Act actually make it more difficult for students, for Aboriginal and Indigenous communities, uh, for many seniors to actually vote. Homeless people. Much harder. The fact Trudeau. is that we need to make sure that those voices are being heard because those voices are not just marginalized uh, in, in uh, voting rights, but in so many aspects of society. And Mr. Harper apparently wants to keep Mr. it Trudeau. that. How would we know, how would we be able to identify voter fraud if we can't even identify who voters are? This is a Electro common sense reform no. supported by 90% of Canadians. And we have made sure that there is, there is ID that is applicable for every single category of Canadians. That's why that policy is strongly Harper, supported. This is an important reform. The Fair Elections Act turns out to be full of surprises. One of the things it did was allow you to extend the election uh, campaign to 11 weeks and prorate uh, expenses uh, to match. Uh, did you have this kind of long election campaign in mind for two years? Paul, um, we agreed, all of us here agreed to have an election debate this week months ago. Everybody knew an election would be on. The other parties were out campaigning. It's very simple. Mr. Trump, one of the things people love about you is you speak your mind and you don't use a politician's filter. However, that is not without its downsides, in particular when it comes to women. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Your Twitter account Only Rosie O'Donnell. Your Twitter account. Thank you. For the record, it was well beyond Rosie O'Donnell. Yes, I'm sure it was. Your Twitter account has several disparaging comments about women's looks. You once told a contestant on Celebrity Apprentice it would be a pretty picture to see her on her knees. Does that sound to you like the temperament of a man we should elect as president 
And how will you answer the charge from Hillary Clinton, who is likely to be the Democratic nominee, that you are part of the war on women? I think the big problem this country has is being politically correct. I've been, ch I've been challenged by so many people, and I don't frankly have time for total political correctness. And to be honest with you, this country doesn't have time either. This country is in big trouble. We don't win anymore. We lose to China. We lose to Mexico, both in trade and at the border. We lose to everybody. And frankly, what I say, and oftentimes it's fun, it's kidding, we have a good time. What I say is what I say. And honestly, Megan, if you don't like it, I'm sorry. I've been very nice to you, although I could probably maybe not be based on the way you have treated me, but I wouldn't do that. But you know what? We, we need strength, we need energy, we need quickness, and we need brain in this country to turn it around. That I can tell you right now. Good old Donald Trump. Bear in mind that the debate we just heard and we'll hear more of shortly was a debate among Republicans only, not a debate between Republicans and Democrats. Yet, for me, it felt more polarized than an actual electoral debate. It was aired on a popularly recognized conservative network, Fox News, and I heard more discussion and insight on various issues listening to this than I would ever have heard in an actual political campaign debate. It just goes to demonstrate, as we've noted so often, that the more real and essential and fundamental debates seem to all occur on the right. The left tends to censure debate, particularly through the threat of political correctness and playing the racism and sexism cards wherever they can and usually where they don't apply. When I first became aware of Donald Trump many years ago through his books, publications, and reputation, I recall admiring him for his tenacity and accomplishments, but regretting what I regarded as his politically very left viewpoints. Though Trump has apparently drifted considerably to the right wing over the years, I still find myself in, a dis in disagreement on a number of issues. But I tend to like the guy and his attitude. I'll have more to say about that later after we hear a bit more from him. But the media attacks on Trump are not so much about his viewpoints, but about his failure to toe these politically correct lines. Discrediting and ridiculing Donald Trump, the who and not the what, is the method of their attack. You know, mostly so the what won't get me won't get mentioned. Attack the messenger, not the message. And here in London, the local media, for its part, played clips of Trump's comments from from the excerpt we just heard, and generally cut off Trump's response at the end of his only Rosie O'Donnell retort, which left it completely out of context. And that left the way clear for the media to express its crocodile outrage and disapproval of Donald Trump. Can you believe it? And then they ridiculed Trump while simultaneously dismissing his views on the issues. Uh, I was kind of turned off by those reactions. But interestingly, when Trump responded, only Rosie O'Donnell, why do you suppose the, the crowd cheered so loudly to this response? Because they're anti-woman? <laughs> of course not. It's because Trump never backs down or avoids a question, and that's one thing you're going to hear very shortly, how true that really is. Um, and then there was, uh, oh, when Megyn uh, Kelly of Fox News asked him about uh, 
it would be it, on Celebrity Apprentice how it would be a pretty picture to see some woman on her knees. I was really amazed that Trump did not bring up Bill Clinton or Monica Lewinsky in that case. He could have come back with a good one, but he he chose not to go to go there. And uh, of course, it's it's all about the war on women. I found that very interesting. Only two weeks ago, we were taking a look at the political war on men and on masculinity. That is one of the real wars going on. Um, a war on women, that's just simply taking Trump's loose lip style and some kind of grand cause, you know, Hillary Clinton's cause, not Trump's, and revealing an agenda that's not about Trump's temperament. It, you know, it's almost like the Bill Cosby phenomenon in microcosm. Here you have a rich male individual with a lot of power influ- and influence who behaves in a very masculine, assertive way in, in, in his approach to the issues. You know, we don't win anymore, he says, and that's a very masculine way of expressing his frustration. I think it's really Trump himself that bothers most of his critics. And as you'll hear later, he also gets accused of calling his his fellow candidates on the very stage with him. He calls them clowns and puppets and things like that, or at least least, least gets accused on that. And um, when he said, uh, you know, I think the big problem that this country has is being politically correct, I actually had to severely shorten the audience response to that on our clip today because it just went on for ages. And uh, when he closed off with, we need strength, energy, quickness, and we need brain in this country to turn it around, you know, here he sounded exactly like the president in our opening audio selection from the 1933 film Gabriel over the White House. But in any case, uh, Donald Trump still in the lead after the after the debates reports uh, Shauna Thomas and John Lipinski and NBC News the following day. And uh, the numbers have since, since that still gone up. Trump's lead has increased even more over the past week, with some Republican Party officials now seeing Trump as a, quote, problem, <laughs> um, because they don't think he can beat Hillary Clinton. But I don't know. Don't bet on it. And with that, here is another eight and a half minutes or so of evidence why Trump just could be the guy to beat Hillary Clinton. Let's listen in. Mr. Trump. Obamacare is one of the things you call a disaster. Complete disaster, yes. Saying it needs to be repealed and replaced. Correct. Now, 15 years ago, you called yourself a liberal on health care. You were for a single-payer system, a Canadian-style system. Why were you for that then, and why aren't you for it now? As far as single-payer, it works in Canada. It works incredibly well in Scotland. It could have worked in a different age, which is the age you're talking about here. What I'd like to see is a private system without the artificial lines around every state. I have a big company with thousands and thousands of employees, and if I'm negotiating in New York or in New Jersey or in California, I have like one bidder. Nobody can bid. You know why? Because the insurance companies are making a fortune because they have control of the politicians, of course, with the exception of the politicians of the stage. But they have total control of the politicians, they're making a fortune. Get rid of the artificial lines and you will have yourself great plans. And then we have to take care of the people that can't take care of themselves, and I will do that through a different system. Hey, Brett, Mr. Trump, Brett, hold on I one got, second. I got a news flash. I know, hold on, Senator news, Paul. News flash, the Republican Party's been fighting against a single-payer okay. system for a decade. So I think you're on the wrong side of this if you're still arguing for a single-payer system. Not, I'm not, I don't think you heard me. You're having a hard time tonight. All right. Let- Mr. Trump, it's not just your past support for single-payer health care. 
You've also supported a host of other liberal policies. You've also donated to several Democratic candidates, Hillary Clinton included, Nancy Pelosi. You explained away those donations saying you did that to get business-related favors. And you said recently, quote, when you give, they do whatever the hell you want them to do. You better believe it. So what specifically did they do? If I ask them, if I need them, you know, most of the people on this stage I've given to, just so you understand. A lot of money. Not me. Not me. <laughs> but you're welcome to give me a check, Donald, if you like. Many of them. Actually, to be clear, That's he right. supported not, Charlie Crist. Not much. Hey, Charlie, but I, Charlie. I have... Donald, if you end I have campaign, kid- I hope you will give to me. Good. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good to me, Governor. I will tell you that our system is broken. I give to many people. Before this, before two months ago, I was a businessman. I give to everybody. When they call, I give. And you know what? When I need something from them, two years later, three years later, I call them. They are there for me. And that's a broken system. So what'd you get from Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi? Well, I'll tell you what. With Hillary Clinton, I said, be at my wedding, and she came to my wedding. You know why? She had no choice because I gave. I gave to a foundation that, frankly, that foundation is supposed to do good. I didn't know her money would be used on private jets going all over the world. It was. But, Mr. Trump, thank you. Hold on. We're going we're gonna to move on. We'll come back to you, Governor Walker. Candidates, you may not have seen the late developing news today. Our Fox Pentagon team broke earlier this evening about a top Iranian general traveling to Moscow to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin. His name is General Qasem Soleimani. He's blamed for hundreds of U.S. troop deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan. His trip to Russia appears to directly violate UN Security Council resolutions to confine him to Iran. So Mr. Trump, if you were president, how would you respond to this? I would be so different from what you have right now, like the polar opposite. We have a president who doesn't have a clue. I would say he's incompetent, but I don't want to do that because that's not nice. But if you look at the deals we make, whether it's the nuclear deal with 24-hour periods, and by the way, before you get to the 24 hours, you have to go through a system. You look at Sergeant Bergdahl, we get Bergdahl, a traitor, and they get five of the big, great killers, leaders that they want. We have people in Washington that don't know what they're doing. Now, I agree. (laughs) Now, with Iran. We're making a deal. You would say, we want him. We want him. We want our prisoners. We want all these things. We don't get anything. We're giving them $150 billion plus. They are going to be, I'll tell you what, if Iran was a stock, you folks should go out and buy it right now because you'll quadruple. This, what's happened in Iran is a disgrace. And it's going to lead to destruction in large portions of the world. Mr. Trump, in 1999, you said you were, quote, very pro-choice, even supporting partial birth abortion. You favored an assault weapons ban as well. In 2004, you said in most cases you identified as a Democrat. Even in this campaign, your critics say you often sound more like a Democrat than a Republican, calling several of your opponents on this stage things like clowns and puppets. When did you actually become a Republican? 
I don't think they like me very much. I'll tell you what, uh, I've evolved on many issues over the years, and you know who else has is Ronald Reagan evolved on many issues. And I am pro-life, and if you look at the question, I was in business, they asked me a question as to pro-life or choice, and I said, if you let it run, that I hate the concept of abortion. I hate the concept of abortion. And then since then, I've very much evolved. And what happened is friends of mine years ago were going to have a child, and it was going to be aborted, and it wasn't aborted. And that child today is a total superstar, a great, great child. And I saw that, and I saw other instances. And I am very, very proud to say that I am pro-life. As far as being a Republican is concerned, I come from a place, New York City, which is virtually, I mean, it's almost exclusively Democrat. And I have really started to see some of the negatives. As an example, and I have a lot of liking for this man, but the last number of months of his brother's administration were a catastrophe. And unfortunately, those few months gave us President Obama. And you can't be happy about that. Governor Bush, I want to ask you, on the subject of name-calling of uh, your fellow candidates, a story appeared today quoting an anonymous GOP donor who said you called Mr. Trump a clown, a buffoon, Don't something else that cannot be repeated on television. None of which is, is true. Is it true? No, it's not true. But I have said that Mr. Trump's language is divisive. I want to win. I want one of these people here, or the ones at 5 o'clock, to be the next president of the United States. We're not going to win by doing what Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton do each and every day, dividing the country, saying, creating a grievance kind of environment. We're going to win when we unite people with a hopeful, optimistic message. I have that message because I was a governor of state that saw people lifted up because we had high sustained economic growth. Our economy grew at double the rate of uh, the nation. We created 1.3 million jobs. We led the nation seven out of those eight years. We were only one of two states that went to AAA bond rating. I cut taxes $19 billion. If you do that and apply conservative principles the right way, you create an environment where everybody rises up. That's how we're going to win, campaigning in places to give people hope that their life is better because too many people are suffering today in America. Mr. Trump, 30 seconds. Well, first of all, Jeb, I, I am very happy that you denied that, and I appreciate that very much. I mean, he's a true gentleman. He really is. The one thing he did say about, and I mean that, the one thing he did say about me, however, was my tone, and I also understand that. But when you have people that are cutting Christians' heads off, when you have a world at the border and at so many places that it's medieval times, we've never, it's almost got to be as bad as it ever was in terms of the violence and the horror. We don't have time for tone. We have to go out and get the job done. Wow, you got to admit that they sure weren't taking it easy on Donald Trump. He said a lot of things there, a number of issues covered. Um, you know, he said how a single payer works in Canada, but it can't work there. Well, why would that be? Well, because America's already broke, and they, you know, Canada wasn't broke before we went into single payer. So it's kind of like where your credit card is at at the point in time. If you're, if it's all charged up, well, you better not go that direction. Even though Obama decided to do that, but in Canada, we we had a zero credit card balance when we started all of this, and now we're dealing with the elephant in the room, as we like to call it. Uh, takes up most of the budget of the government, and of course, when he's talking about. Uh, um, 
what was he talking about? Artificial lines. He's, he's, he's really referring around every state. He's really referring to trade barriers and monopolies and the lack of, of competition. And based solely on his sentence, as I heard it in the debate, it sounds like Trump, Trump has the general right idea when it comes to focusing on those who can't take care of themselves through a different system rather than through universal social programs, which force everyone rich and poor alike to participate, and which in turn leaves dramatically fewer resources left for the truly needy. Government welfare is an entirely different thing than the welfare state. You always heard me speak against the latter and never against the former. But here's the Trump card of this debate, which just blew me away. You know, when, when Trump was challenged for having given campaign donations to various candidates, from Hillary Clinton to, the mo- to most of the other Republican challengers on the stage with him, He was quoted as having said that he gets business favors for doing so. Quote, when you give, they do whatever the hell you want them to, end quote. To which Trump replied by not evading what may have appeared to be an accusation of some sort, but by affirming the fact. You better believe it, he responded. Wow, I thought. But then it got even better. And then he says, I'll tell you our system's broken. I gave to many people before this. I give to everyone who calls. And you know what? When I call them again two years later, they're there for me. And that's a broken system, end quote. You know, I have to say I was a bit awestricken by that statement. It was almost an epiphany of, of the whole event. Just think about it for a minute. Here's a businessman, in essence, saying that he could buy politicians, did so himself, and insist that that is wrong that we shouldn't be doing that. That's why it's a broken system, and I was pleasantly dumbfounded. I'm still finding it hard to absorb. I hope I heard it right. But, you know, how would he fix the system? What what would he do, ban political contributions, restrict contribution amounts? I'm really not up on American political financing as such, but my guess is that there will be a devil in the details of any fixing on this issue. And, of course, uh, calling Obama incompetent is, is going to go over well with Republicans, is no question. Sounds like he has a pretty straightforward line on the whole issue of what's happening in the Mideast. Also, speaking on his issues of being very pro-choice, he says he hates the concept of abortion, um, as did Robert Vaughn and I on several past broadcasts, even though we don't wouldn't prohibit abortion. Though his opinion on the law may be a slightly different matter, we didn't really hear that. You know, you can easily say I'm pro-life, which does not necessarily imply that he would prohibit abortions, at least in the early stages of pregnancy. That policy was never really clarified. And again, um, when he was criticized by uh, Bush, Jeb Bush, he says he's a true gentleman, etc., And, uh, again, what I found fascinating about Trump throughout all of this was that he was always directly answering the charges levied against him. He never evaded anything. He he just got right in and did it. And I think that attitude alone is refreshing, whether you agree with it or not. And, uh, yeah, we have to go out and get the job done. I realize that sounds like the populist position all the way. You know, Trump has not ruled out running independently should his bid for the Republican leadership fail. In fact, he was the only one who raised his hand at the beginning of the debate when all the candidates were asked about this specifically. Again, being totally upfront and open about his position. And, you know, somebody comes back on him later, he can't say, well, I didn't tell you so. 
So you can understand why a guy like Trump is coming to be seen as a problem for the Republican Party. Trump could still pull a Ross Perot and form a splinter party, which would be seen as splitting the Republican vote, thus allowing the Democrats to squeeze through the middle in, in, with a win. Uh, you know, kind of just like every Canadian election result, I guess they'd have to experience that for a change. So, I hope that what you've heard on the show today has at least given you a broader perspective and context of what was actually discussed and debated during last week's uh, political events. I suppose that my own big frustration with election media coverage in general, and remember, I have no personal stake in any of the parties or candidates we've heard from today, it's this. Uh, I love it when some politician or political candidate is put on the ropes for a legitimate reason, relating to something that's consistent with reality and reason. But even when the politicians I would otherwise despise politically are attacked for the wrong reasons or on the wrong grounds, I get no pleasure or satisfaction out of that. I find it almost necessary and proper to speak to their defense and to point out the fraud or deception in those who are attacking them this way. That's, that's when I get around to feeling just a bit better about the whole thing, if for no other reason than to get a little closer to the truth. So it seems fairly safe to conclude that political debates, like history and throughout history, may not always repeat themselves literally, but they do always rhyme. Just like Just Right, where every week weekly show is different, but they all rhyme by moving in the same direction, a journey in the right direction, which will continue next week when you can join us once again. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. To black and white under the bed clothes, everything will be Senator McCain shut down his campaign this week in order to deal with the economic crisis. What's your opinion of this potential $700 billion bailout? Like every American I'm speaking with, we are ill about this. We're saying, hey, why bail out Fannie and Freddie and not me? But ultimately what the bailout does is help those that are concerned about the health care reform that is needed to help shore up our economy, to help, um, it's got to be all about job creation too. Also to shoring up our economy and putting Fannie and Freddie back on the right track and so health care reform and reducing taxes and reining in spending because Barack Obama, you know, uh, you know, we've got to accompany tax reduction and tax relief for Americans. Also, having a dollar value meal at restaurants, that's going to help. But one in five jobs being created today under the umbrella of job creation, that, you know, also, 